Titus from the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Leeson. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Titus, paragraphs 1 through 11. Titus, who had the same cognomen with his father, was the darling and delight of mankind. So much did the natural genius, address, or good fortune he possessed tend to conciliate the favor of all. This was indeed extremely difficult after he became emperor, as before that time, and even during the reign of his father, he lay under public odium and censure. He was born upon the third of the calends of January, in the year remarkable for the death of Caius, near the Septizonium, in a mean house and a very small and dark room, which still exists and is shown to the curious. He was educated in the palace with Britannicus, and instructed in the same branches of learning and under the same masters. During this time, they say, that a physiognomist being introduced by Narcissus, the freedman of Claudius, to examine the features of Britannicus, positively affirmed that he would never become emperor, but that Titus, who stood by, would. They were so familiar that Titus, being next him at table, is thought to have tasted of the fatal potion which put an end to Britannicus' life, and to have contracted from it a distemper which hung about him a long time. In remembrance of all these circumstances, he afterwards erected a golden statue of him in the Palatium, and dedicated to him an equestrian statue of ivory, attending it in the Circensian procession, in which it is still carried to this day. While yet a boy, he was remarkable for his noble endowments both of body and mind, and as he advanced in years they became still more conspicuous. He had a fine person, combining an equal mixture of majesty and grace, was very strong, though not tall, and somewhat corpulent. Gifted with an excellent memory and a capacity for all the arts of peace and war, he was a perfect master of the use of arms and riding, very ready in the Latin and Greek tongues, both in verse and prose, and such was the facility he possessed in both that he would harangue and versify extempore, nor was he unacquainted with music, but could both sing and play upon the harp sweetly and scientifically. I have likewise been informed by many persons that he was remarkably quick in writing shorthand, would in merriment and jest engage with his secretaries in the imitation of any handwriting he saw, and often say that he was admirably qualified for forgery. He filled with distinction the rank of a military tribune both in Germany and Britain, in which he conducted himself with the utmost activity and no less modesty and reputation, as appears evident from the great number of statues with honorable inscriptions erected to him in various parts of both those provinces. After serving in the wars, he frequented the courts of law, but with less assiduity than applause. About the same time he married Arisidia, the daughter of Tertullus, who was only a knight, but had formerly been prefect of the Praetorian Guards. After her decease he married Marcia Fernilla, of a very noble family, but afterwards divorced her, taking from her the daughter he had by her. 
Upon the expiration of his questorship, he was raised to the rank of commander of a legion, and took the two strong cities of Terakia and Gamala in Judea, and having his horse killed under him in a battle, he mounted another, whose rider he had encountered and slain. Soon afterwards, when Galba came to be emperor, he was sent to congratulate him, and turned the eyes of all people upon himself, wherever he came, it being the general opinion amongst them that the emperor had sent for him with a design to adopt him for his son. But finding all things again in confusion, he turned back upon the road, and going to consult the oracle of Venus at Paphos about his voyage, he received assurances of obtaining the empire for himself. These hopes were speedily strengthened, and being left to finish the reduction of Judea, in the final assault of Jerusalem he slew seven of its defenders, with the like number of arrows, and took it upon his daughter's birthday. So great was the joy and attachment of the soldiers, that in their congratulations they unanimously saluted him by the title of emperor, and upon his quitting the province soon afterwards, would needs have detained him, earnestly begging him, and that not without threats, either to stay or take them all with him. This occurrence gave rise to the suspicion of his being engaged in a design to rebel against his father, and claim for himself the government of the East. And the suspicion increased, when on his way to Alexandria, he wore a diadem at the consecration of the ox Apis at Memphis, and though he did it only in compliance with an ancient religious usage of the country, yet there was some who put a bad construction upon it. Making therefore what haste he could into Italy, he arrived first at Regium, and sailing thence in a merchant ship to Puteoli, went to Rome with all possible expedition. Presenting himself unexpectedly to his father, he said, by way of contradicting the strange reports raised concerning him, I am come, father, I am come. From that time he constantly acted as colleague with his father, and indeed as regent of the empire. He triumphed with his father, bore jointly with him the office of censor, and was besides his colleague not only in the tribunician authority, but in seven consulships. Taking upon himself the care and inspection of all offices, he dictated letters, wrote proclamations in his father's name, and pronounced his speeches in the Senate in place of the quaestor. He likewise assumed the command of the Praetorian Guards, although no one but a Roman knight had ever before been their prefect. In this he conducted himself with great haughtiness and violence, taking off without scruple or delay all those he had most reason to suspect, after he had secretly sent his emissaries into the theatres and camp to demand, as if by general consent, that the suspected persons should be delivered up to punishment. Among these he invited to supper A. Caecina, a man of consular rank, whom he ordered to be stabbed at his departure, immediately after he had gone out of the room. To this act, indeed, he was provoked by an imminent danger, for he had discovered a writing under the hand of Caecina, containing an account of a plot hatched among the soldiers. By these acts, though he provided for his future security, yet for the present he so much incurred the hatred of the people, that scarcely ever any one came to the empire with a more odious character, or more universally disliked. Besides his cruelty, he lay under the suspicion of giving way to habits of luxury, as he often prolonged his revels till midnight with the most riotous of his acquaintance. Nor was he unsuspected of lewdness, on account of the swarms of catamites and eunuchs about him, and his well-known attachment to Queen Bernice, who received from him, as it is reported, a promise of marriage. 
he was supposed besides to be of a rapacious disposition for it is certain that in causes which came before his father he used to offer his interest for sale and took bribes in short people publicly expressed an unfavorable opinion of him and said he would prove another nero this prejudice however turned out in the end to his advantage and enhanced his praises to the highest pitch when he was found to possess no vicious propensities but on the contrary the noblest virtues his entertainments were agreeable rather than extravagant and he surrounded himself with such excellent friends that the succeeding princes adopted them as most serviceable to themselves and the state he immediately sent away bernice from the city much against both their inclinations some of his old eunuchs though such accomplished dancers that they bore an uncontrollable sway upon the stage he was so far from treating with any extraordinary kindness that he would not so much as witness their performances in the crowded theatre he violated no private right and if ever man refrained from injustice he did nay he would not accept of the allowable and customary offerings yet in munificence he was inferior to none of the princes before him having dedicated his amphitheatre and built some warm baths close by it with great expedition he entertained the people with most magnificent spectacles he likewise exhibited a naval fleet in the old naumachia besides a combat of gladiators and in one day brought into the theatre five thousand wild beasts of all kinds he was by nature extremely benevolent for whereas all the emperors after tiberius according to the example he had set them would not admit the grants made by former princes to be valid unless they received their own sanction he confirmed them all by one general edict without waiting for any applications respecting them of all who petitioned for any favor he sent none away without hopes and when his ministers represented to him that he promised more than he could perform he replied no one ought to go away downcast from an audience with his prince once at supper reflecting that he had done nothing for any that day he broke out into that memorable and justly admired saying my friends i have lost a day more particularly he treated the people on all occasions with so much courtesy that on presenting them with a show of gladiators he declared he should manage it not according to his own fancy but that of the spectators and did accordingly he denied them nothing and very frankly encouraged them to ask what they pleased espousing the cause of the thracian party among the gladiators he frequently joined in the popular demonstrations in their favor but without compromising his dignity or doing injustice to omit no opportunity of acquiring popularity he sometimes made use himself of the baths he had erected without excluding the common people there happened in his reign some dreadful accidents an eruption of mount vesuvius in campania and a fire in rome which continued during three days and three nights besides a plague such as was scarcely ever known before amidst these many great disasters he not only manifested the concern which might be expected from a prince but even the affection of a father for his people one while comforting them by his proclamations and another while relieving them to the utmost of his power he chose by lot from amongst the men of consular rank commissioners for repairing the losses in campania the estates of those who had perished by the eruption of vesuvius and who had left no heirs he applied to the repair of the ruined cities with regard to the public buildings destroyed by fire in the city he declared that nobody should be a loser but himself 
Accordingly, he applied all the ornaments of his palaces to the decoration of the temples and purposes of public utility, and appointed several men of the equestrian order to superintend the work. For the relief of the people during the plague, he employed, in the way of sacrifice and medicine, all means both human and divine. Amongst the calamities of the times were informers and their agents, a tribe of miscreants who had grown up under the license of former reigns. These he frequently ordered to be scourged or beaten with sticks in the forum, and then, after he had obliged them to pass through the amphitheater as a public spectacle, commanded them to be sold for slaves, or else banished them to some rocky islands. And to discourage such practices for the future, amongst other things, he prohibited actions to be successively brought under different laws for the same cause, or the state of affairs of deceased persons to be inquired into after a certain number of years. Having declared that he accepted the office of Pontifex Maximus for the purpose of preserving his hands undefiled, he faithfully adhered to his promise. For after that time he was neither directly nor indirectly concerned in the death of any person, though he sometimes was justly irritated, he swore that he would perish himself rather than prove the destruction of any man. Two men of patrician rank being convicted of aspiring to the empire, he only advised them to desist, saying that the sovereign power was disposed of by fate, and promised them that if there was anything else they desired of him, he would grant it. He also immediately sent messengers to the mother of one of them, who was at a great distance and in deep anxiety about her son, to assure her of his safety. Nay, he not only invited them to sup with him, but next day, at a show of gladiators, purposely placed them close by him, and handed to them the arms of the combatants for his inspection. It is said likewise that having had their nativities cast, he assured them that a great calamity was impending on both of them, but from another hand and not from his. Though his brother was continually plotting against him, almost openly stirring up the armies to rebellion, and contriving to get away, yet he could not endure to put him to death, or to banish him from his presence, nor did he treat him with less respect than before. But from his first accession to the empire, he constantly declared him his partner in it, and that he should be his successor, begging of him sometimes in private, with tears in his eyes, to return the affection he had for him. Amidst all these favorable circumstances, he was cut off by an untimely death, more to the loss of mankind than himself. At the close of the public spectacles, he wept bitterly in the presence of the people, and then retired into the Sabine country, rather melancholy, because a victim had made its escape while he was sacrificing, and loud thunder had been heard while the atmosphere was serene. At the first resting place on the road he was seized with a fever, and being carried forward in a litter, they say that he drew back the curtains and looked up to heaven, complaining heavily that his life was taken from him, though he had done nothing to deserve it, for there was no action of his that he had occasion to repent of, but one. What that was he neither disclosed himself, nor is it easy for us to conjecture. Some imagine that he alluded to the connection which he had formerly had with his brother's wife, but Domitia solemnly denied it on oath, which she would never have done had there been any truth in the report. Nay, she would certainly have gloried in it, as she was forward enough to boast of all her scandalous intrigues. He died in the same villa where his father had died, before him, upon the Ides of September, 
two years, two months, and twenty days after he had succeeded his father, and in the one-and-fortieth year of his age. As soon as the news of his death was published, all people mourned for him, as for the loss of some near relative. The Senate assembled in haste, before they could be summoned by proclamation, and locking the doors of their house at first, but afterwards opening them, gave him such thanks, and heaped upon him such praises, now he was dead, as they never had done whilst he was alive and present among them. End of Titus